Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the Podmedic, and we have got a great episode for you tonight. Um, a lot of the gang is off t- this evening for a variety of reasons. We'll touch on some of that here in a little bit. Um, but luckily, we do have my esteemed co-host, Sam Bradley, available for us, who was able to pull in our guest for tonight, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Uh, but before we get to that, we got to bring in Sam. So, hey, Sam, what's up? Well, the usual weird Colorado weather, we had 90 degrees, and then two days later on the first day of fall, we had a, we had a frost warning. <laughs> Go figure. But it seems to be settling in, you know, around the 80s, which is where it should be at this time of year. Anyway, um, how are things back east? Weather-wise. They're good. We're actually keeping an eye on um, Tropical Storm Sam, which is way out in the Atlantic, down in the tropics uh, between uh, South America and um, Africa. But it could curve up and sw- sideswipe the East Coast, so we're keeping an eye on that. But it'll be a week or so before we have to worry about it. So, yeah, they finally got to me, huh? <laughs> yep. Hurricane Sam. I'll be nice. I'll be- I well, we we like to think so. Um, the other thing is, I was going to mention, we've been trying to get some folks from the the state of Louisiana EMS EOC, but they're still working. Uh, they're not only still working on cleaning up the last hurricane, they're watching all these other ones that are spinning up. So uh, I'm not sure at what point they're going to get released. they got to be tired. They've been doing this for weeks. So... Anyway, I thought I'd mention that on the weather note. No, I have a good um, friend that, that lives in New Orleans, and they got out ahead of the storm, and they just now, just um, they moved, they left like a day before Ida hit, and then they just moved back in this week. So um, that they've been you know, staying at a hotel somewhere in, I think, um, Tennessee. So, yeah. Did they have anything to move into? Oh, yeah. I mean, their apartment is still there. It just didn't have any power for two and a half weeks. So, Yeah. Well, and part of the problem was the electricity being off, which creates a whole host of other issues. And uh, we heard from Dr. Joe. He's dealing with the Collierville active shooter situation and uh, made the comment that training works. So I think Paragon must have, uh, or he and his role as the Memphis medical director um, worked on training for active shooter and it sounds like it's it's working well um, I know nothing about it you said it you thought it was a grocery store I don't know Danny have you heard anything about that it's it's outside of Memphis nope. Huh. Okay. Yeah, all I know no, is there was no, a. I have not. Yeah, it was an active shooter at a grocery store. Um, one individual was killed. Um, the shooter also um, died. I'm not sure exactly how. Um, and uh, there were 12 people taken to the hospital, various levels of injuries. So um, we'll find out more about that hopefully when Joe's able to come on and talk about. Um, how teams there responded and what worked, what didn't work. And and we'll definitely have an after action from him on that um, when he's able in a future episode. Yeah. And he's very good about sharing the after action lessons because it's always good to carry them into the next one. So we have Danny R. Smith with us tonight. He's one of my, my comrades from the police writer group. And uh, we've been chatting about 
the fact that both of us had our careers in L.A. County and some of the various incidents that we ended up both being involved in, so we can kind of look at that from both sides. Uh, but first, Danny, um, tell them a bit about yourself and your career, and then I have a few questions on that. Okay, I will. I'm uh, a retired L.A. County Sheriff's uh, homicide detective, and of course, you don't start out there. I, I was, uh, like all other deputies, I went through the academy, and then I worked custody for a, a short stint. And then I did a, a patrol assignment for five years in South L.A., uh, made station detectives, did that for a couple years, went on to work a crime impact team, and the night car uh, eventually went to detective division, worked special investigations, metro detail, and spent the last seven years at Homicide Bureau. Since uh, retiring in 2004, I moved to Idaho, started a PI business, and I've been working as a private investigator and consultant for the last uh, about 15 years. And uh, for the last few years, I've been writing and publishing books, and I'm now um, not quite officially retired, but mostly retired from the, the uh, PI job and just uh, writing and playing some golf. <laughs> there you go. Well, how many books do you have out now? Uh, I have eight published books, seven novels, and uh, I just published a memoir. And um, the, the memoir is called Nothing Left to Prove, and it's the only nonfiction book that I've that I've written. But it is it is about my career, and um, it has a uh, a lot of information in there about about the uh, toll that that job can take. And um, I left uh, I left the job with with chronic PTSD and suffered with it for quite a few years without really acknowledging it and without being diagnosed. And um, so when I left the job, I, uh, that's one of the ways I started writing. I, I wrote because I found it therapeutic to do so and was actually advised by a psychiatrist that, that it would be. And that's how I started writing, actually. Well, and I was going to ask that question later because I want to talk a little bit more about the books. But, you know, writing is cathartic. And I followed that same path because some of us, uh, especially those of us that do PTSD counseling for other people, would never consider that we might be in that situation. So we'll talk about that at the end here. But let's look at some of these issues. You go all the way back to 1992 and the L.A. riots. And you were in the smack dab center of that. So tell us about that one. Yeah, actually, um, the riots uh, came at an interesting time. I had I'd made detectives um, about, oh, I think it was five or six months before the, the riots happened. And, um, and in, in that period of time, um, there was a lot going on. Of course, you know, the the Rodney King incident really, you know, shook up LA for a long time. And, and there was, there was just a lot of tension everywhere and, and you could feel it building when you were working the streets. And, um, and we had a deputy, uh, at our station who was killed in a, uh, in a shootout. And then, um, and that was just a month, I believe, before the riots and my wife and I, uh, my wife of almost 30 years, we were uh, we were engaged to be married, and we had a wedding coming up, and it was about five six weeks out from when the the riots started. So there was a lot going on, and, and it was a a significant time in my life, um, to say, to say the very least. 
Oh, I guess so. Well, you know, as you were talking, I, I and I have reflected on this, looking at the recent issues with police, and, um, you know, there's some similarities there. But I was working for Daniel Freeman Paramedic School in Inglewood, and that was my route <laughs> going through that area. Yeah. And I had to go way around it because <laughs> I didn't think going through it was probably a real good idea. You remember that, Jamie? Yeah, I- uh, I do, you know, but being here on the East Coast, it was kind of something we just kind of watched from afar. And, and you know, I remember watching news coverage of, of you know, various incidents that were able to be captured on video and, and, and covered. And, um, you know, it's just, I, I'm curious, you know, um, Danny, to, to hear, you know, when a major event like that happens that covers such a broad area, um, you know, how, how do you, how do the police respond and, and coordinate to, to kind of get a grip on something like that? Because, you know, we've had so many incidents that have happened in recent years, um, in various cities around the country where it just seemed like it was hard to get a handle on what was going on and try to, you know, keep a, you know, get a perimeter and kind of start to kind of close in and get control again. Sure. And, and not only uh, covering a wide geographical area, but, but multiple law enforcement agencies. And that's, that's a lot of times where um, you have significant breakdown. So I was with the LA County Sheriff's Department and Florence and Normandy, you know, the, uh, the epicenter of, of the LA riots is only a couple of blocks out of the jurisdiction that that I patrolled um, because LA city is just one of of many cities within the county and, and the sheriff's department not only polices all the areas they're unincorporated, but we police a lot of incorporated cities as well that contract our services. So um, it was, it was LAPD, LA sheriffs and a uh, multitude of smaller agencies that, that were impacted by the, the riots that spread quickly um, all through South Los Angeles, no doubt. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it just occurred to me, one thing that came out of that incident was the strike team concept because of the concern with the EMS and fire and everybody else going in. And if, what I remember is the strike team consisted of a police unit, a fire engine, an ambulance, and there was one more in the mix, but that came out of that, those riots, and has kind of been used ever since. And you stayed together. You could not break off and, and deal with anything else as long as you were in that hot zone. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I'll tell you something, Sam, that's interesting is that the first couple of nights, um, and, and I, having just recently gone to day shift, I was working, or to uh, detectives, I was working day shift, but I was called back in that night, and uh, um, when when I got in and started working, that's the shift I became a part of for the next couple of weeks. But but interestingly, the first few nights it was just chaos. You know, I mean, we were just responding, you know, from one uh, uh, violent episode to another, and and continuous, and it never slowed down, and it never never stopped, and and it was just you know it was it was complete chaos. And after a couple nights, and we were arresting, you know, just hundreds of looters and, and rioters and, and, and people violating the law, and a curfew, of course, had been uh, put into effect. But after a couple of nights, they, they decided, okay, we, we need to, to stop 
you know, handling it like this and, and like you're describing, you know, start, start this, the strike team that, that will, you know, respond with, you know, it was going to be two four man cars, uh, a, a supervisor and, you know, whatever else. Well, they hadn't yet included the, the fire department in that, in that plan. So they had us all staged at a command post. And the next thing you know, we hear over the radio that the firemen were being shot at. Yes. And so, of course, we all jumped in our cars and took off, and, and a lieutenant was coming through the parking lot walking toward us and and trying to get a handle on it. But we all flew by him because firemen were being shot at. We weren't going to sit there and stage and, and respond, you know, in any kind of organized fashion. You know, we know firemen are unarmed. We're getting down there, and, and, and we're taking care of business. But um, it, it, it was it – was, still chaotic. And, um, I think it took us about four or five nights before we finally started getting a pretty good handle on things. And, and the military was there to assist us. And we were able to, to take back, you know, our city blocks at a time station military to, you know, contain it and then, and then move to the next block. And that's when we finally started getting things to calm down. But, but yeah, there, there was a lot learned from that incident, um, in 1992. And ironically, it was sort of a vision into the future because that's kind of what we've been dealing with lately. Uh, Jamie, you have a question? Yeah, I'm curious, Danny, you know, from from being in the midst of that, um, what is some some things that you would consider misconceptions from people who haven't dealt with that type of an incident or a situation um, that, a, a common misconception or two that, that you run into when you talk to folks about how those situations are dealt with? You know, I, I would say probably the most common misconception is that, that they, they, they think that the police are, are being um, heavy handed and, and overly aggressive. And, um, and I can tell you that, that, I mean, there's just, there's so much violence during a situation like that, 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 you know, you, you do have to use force and, and, um, and that's, you know, that's why they pay us the big bucks to do the job. And I'm saying that sarcastically, we don't really get the big bucks, <laughs> but the point is, you know, not, not a lot of people are willing to do what, what the, the cops are, are doing and suiting up and going out there. And, and there's been a, a lot of change in, in that, you know, 30 years, because, you look over the last year and a half, two years at, at the riots across the nation, and I am I am just really proud of how law enforcement has met those challenges. Now, I'll say this. In some cities, their hands have been tied, and they haven't been allowed to do their job. But um, my agency, L.A. County Sheriff's, I, I've seen a lot of footage, and I've, I've spoken with a lot of people who are, are still on the job and been involved and the way that they handled the the riots that occurred in any of their jurisdictions, it, it was just remarkable. Um, I mean, seriously, like the the organization, the uh, the tactics, the the weapons, you know, the less than lethal weapons that were deployed, just just everything. I mean, I think that that law enforcement has matured so much and and evolved so much, and I think they do a much better job than we did when we were out there. Which is what you hope. I mean, you, you just would expect that. You know, it's it's an evolution. Yeah, and unfortunately, there's so much anti-stuff that they don't see the good stuff. And that's unfortunate. Well, let's, well, let's the media. 
Go ahead, Danny. I was just going to say that you know the the media they 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 want to show the they they don't want to show anything that's going to be favorable. Let's put it that way because that's not going to that's not going to you know rally the uh, the audience. They so they're going to show whatever looks the worst. And and the truth is, you know, it's like every other aspect of law enforcement. You know, about ninety eight percent of it is is being done really really well. And um, you know, you, you can always find a, a bad apple here and there, but that's that's not what, you know, should be focused or what they should be focused on. Well, unfortunately, I think that puts more cops in danger when people only see those negative incidents and don't appreciate sure. what they do. And we'll get to another uh, comment on that. But let's fast forward two years to 1994 to the Northridge earthquake. And I know... Uh, Jamie can remember that, a 6.7. But your experience on that one was really interesting. Why don't you go ahead with that? Yeah, well, it was because, again, I'm working detectives, and I was working in a specialized unit, and it just so happened. um, And there was still a lot of tension in in the uh, urban areas, you know, in the years that followed. And we ended up my partner and I ended up handling a kind of a hot case that became a, a media um, frenzy, so to speak, and it involved a Korean uh, market owner who shot um, a person that was, that was trying to steal from the store. And there had been several of those throughout the country. And, you know, they always jumped on those and, 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 and really portrayed them as, as acts of racism and everything else. Well, anyway, long story short, um, my, my partner and I were involved in this investigation. We were just, we were working a lot of hours on this case. And after the earthquake, uh, you know, all, all of the, um, all of <laughs> the transportation came to a complete stop. And, you know, I lived up in the North County and worked down in the South County. And, and my first day getting back to work after the earthquake, it, it took me like six hours to get there. So I just stayed there for, you know, several days. Um, eventually they, you know, they, they, they get, they were able to build temporary roads that kind of went around the uh, demolished freeways and stuff, and and you could commute, but it still took you forever. So um, th- there were a couple of occasions where we actually, you know, got our captain and we said, hey, we need a helicopter to take us uh, from here to there because it would take us four hours to drive there and a half hour to fly there. So we did that a few times, and that was kind of an interesting uh, um, twist on detective work, you know, for sure. Yeah, that's uh. That was a mess. I I was doing Red Cross work at the time, and we had a uh, uh, a shelter set up in Silmar. And I remember being there at night and feeling those aftershocks that didn't seem to ever want to go away. And I remember all of these. That's when they learned a lot about the construction of apartment buildings. That you know, many of them that were four stories were now two, and uh, and right. that kind of thing. You know, so there's a lot of search and rescue stuff going on. You remember that one, Jamie? I think you probably do. I do. You know, I think that's the, you know, the most um, lasting image that comes to me from that is um, there was, a, I guess, a, a two-level freeway or an area where an overpass yeah. crossed over and pancaked down on the, you know, trapping people and vehicles, you know, between the two level levels of road. Um, and, you know, I'm curious to, to hear from both of you, um, you know, California obviously 
has to have a certain level of preparedness for response to earthquakes. But like, like you alluded to, Danny, the, the issues that come from collapsed infrastructure that makes it so that you can't get to where you need to get to, um, is that something that was foreseen in any way or is it something that is, that has changed after the fact? You know, I, I don't know for sure. I can tell you that, that the L.A. County Sheriff's Department and probably every large agency, uh, law enforcement agency throughout the country, um, they, we have a, um, a, a special operations bureau. And I'm, I'm missing the name right now. I'm, I'm, I can't think of it, but but they are they are strictly um, their whole purpose is to be prepared for major catastrophes, major incidents. And they do a phenomenal job. And one of the things that happened after that earthquake, and it happened rather, rather quickly, and it worked really well, is that the deputies were almost immediately and overnight reassigned to the station nearest their homes. Because L.A. County is a big place, right? You know, we're, oh, yeah. it's, uh, you know, 4,000 some square miles, 10 million residents. And, um, and, and deputies, you know, are spread all over the place not only where they live, but where they work. There's 26 different sheriff stations in the county of Los Angeles. So, um, and, and a lot of deputies, you know, commute from, you know, one place to another. So, so rather quickly, it was, it was interesting how well this worked, but they, they just changed how, where personnel were to report by where they lived. And, somehow it amazingly worked out pretty well. And of course our, our special enforcement bureau were, they were transporting deputies all over the place, you know, in their, in their big Sigorsky helicopters and, and things of that nature. But, but yeah, they, they do a really good job at that. And it's, it's kind of surprising how, uh, how quickly they're able to, to kind of get um, a hand on, on even the unexpected things like freeways collapsing, you know, which I'm sure is no longer unexpected. And I don't know if it was unexpected, to them at the time or not. And I just thought of the name, it's emergency operations bureau, but, um, you know, I, I don't know if they expected, you know, a freeway to collapse or not, but they, they sure reacted well and, and coordinated, um, the, the best reaction and response that they could. In my opinion, I thought they did a great job. Well, and of course I hope they've, uh, you know, rebuilt those, areas to be a little stronger. And I think, Jamie, you might have also been thinking about the Nimitz in Northern California that, that pancaked down, too. So, you know, that happened on both ends. It was an old section of a freeway, that double layer, and it didn't work too well. Um, and I particularly remember the Whittier Narrows earthquake in 1987. That was a 5.9 because I was standing in my bathroom in Whittier, getting ready to go to Daniel Freeman, and suddenly I was, you know, it was like somebody just threw me up in the air and then down on my butt. It's like, what the hell was that? Because, you know, most earthquakes, you kind of you hear it coming and you, you finally get that wave action underneath you, but this was anything but that. And it turned out it was a... Uh, being that close to the Whittier Hills, it was a mountain building type earthquake, which tends to go more up and down. And that was the first time I'd experienced that. So, you know, I look outside and everything looks okay. And so I turn the TV on and they're talking about stuff happening in LA city proper. 
And, you know, there's kind of a thing that some of the worst hit areas aren't noticed right away because sometimes their communications are down. So, you know, working for an ambulance company, um, they called me and they go, well, where are you? We need you. And I said, well, there's, it doesn't look that bad here. And he said, all of down uh, uptown Whittier is, you know, it was a pile of bricks because they had all this unreinforced masonry and, and everything pretty much went down. So I ended up going to work and it, communications were so disrupted. We had the trauma center a block away from us, but we couldn't communicate with them. So I had to go to the hospital, find a line that worked and start working on getting people out so we could get more people in. And, I, you know, another thing that impressed me about that was that the uh, that was Whittier Presbyterian Hospital, which I ended up working at later. Their disaster plan really worked, and that was pretty impressive. Um, I think uh, you you and Johnny had kind of a little Euro thing going on on that one. I read your blog on that. <laughs> yeah, so one of my best friends, uh, Johnny Babbitt, he and I, we, we knew each other before we got in the department and went to the academy together and worked the jail together and went to Firestone together. And and, and back then, in, um, uh, I think you said 87, right, is when that earthquake was? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So we were we were radio car partners and we were working day shift on that day and we started our, our day by driving over to a, a place that served pretty decent breakfast burritos and and back in those days you know cops ate on the hood of their cars because we didn't have handheld radios yeah. and so you <laughs> wanted to be where you could you could hear the radio you know traffic if someone needed help so we're eating on the hood of our car when when this earthquake hits and we our eyes met over the hood of the car because, you know, we were both raised in Southern California. We knew exactly what it was. And, um, and, and yeah, it, it, it rocked our world literally. And, um, there's, there's some comical things that happened after that, that, that I wrote about in that blog you read, and I've written about it in my memoir, but, but I'll tell you, um, beyond that, we literally spent the next, uh, 10, 12 hours, um, driving, responding from one, uh, emergency to another. I mean, I, I think it was the first time I ever just left the light bar going, you know, the entire day, it's, it seemed like, and, you know, there were fires breaking out everywhere and, and people having medical emergencies and, uh, people who were injured from, from things that had fallen. Uh, we came across a building that was on fire, an apartment, uh, complex and people were running into the building. We, we could see them and they're running into the building and, so of course we ran into the building trying to get these people out and we went in and out a couple of times until we got everyone out. And, you know, our concern was maybe they were going back in for children. Well, they were going back in for their, their personal belongings, which, you know, at the time I, I couldn't believe it, but you know, like I, <laughs> like I said in my blog, but then again, I didn't come to this country with, with very little means, you know, and, and everything that I owned, you know, might not be able to be replaced. So um, and interestingly, and, and and because it was a, a place where it was predominantly Hispanic at this apartment complex and in this particular community where I was working, and a lot of people were here illegally, and um, or legally, but but straight from Mexico. And what we found, and I didn't know this before then, but 
But the buildings are so bad in Mexico that an earthquake is devastating, and and the the people were afraid to go back into buildings. So our yes. parks became camp campgrounds for for weeks. Uh, a lot of the people that, that came here from Mexico refused to go back into their apartments or their homes or their buildings. Everyone just camped in these in in every available spot, you know, parking lots, parks, whatever. And of course, you know that created more crime as well. So it was a it was a pretty interesting um, couple of weeks after that earthquake as well. Yeah, I was still working with Red Cross then, and we had a uh, another service center there. And I remember that all of these folks were refusing to come in. And this was a high school gym, so it was in pretty good shape. But there had just been, if I recall correctly, a huge earthquake in Mexico City prior to this. And that's yeah, why they were so right. hanky. Yeah, that's yeah, what I remember yeah, is that they were still nervous from that. And so they come, <laughs> come to Whittier and end up with another one. So that was yeah. not a lot of fun. But you, you, there was one sentence in there I got a kick out of. Eventually, the fire department arrived and took over their firefighting duties, yawn. We drove over their hoses and headed to the next emergency. So how well did you get along with firefighters? <laughs> so, okay, so here's the thing. I mean, I always, and, and a lot of cops do, we always rag on firemen. And, uh -huh. and I constantly <laughs> throw jabs at them in my books and everything. But um, I had two brothers-in-law that were firemen, and you know, holiday dinners were just hilarious. But, but the the truth is, I mean, of course, I didn't run over their hose. That's one of those things that that the firemen will retaliate against. You don't ever run over oh, yeah. hose. But, but you know, I. <laughs> but but I yeah, I threw that in there for humor. I mean, all the cops would laugh at a, at a line like that. You know that that they showed up to do their firefighting duties, and then in you know yawn, you know, we drive over their hose and go on to the next police emergency but no we like to give them a hard time i always make fun of them in their suspenders and you know baggy pants and things like that <laughs> they, they weren't a fashion statement um yeah but, you know you mentioned the the food i remember because we used to have to transport to the jail down there um and we we'd go with the sheriff deputies and we'd always go to tommy's the original tommy's and oh, we yeah. would eat on the on the hood of the car, not ours, um, theirs. <laughs> so the sheriff units always yeah. ended up with chili and whatever the hell. Anyway, yeah. um, you, Jamie, you have any thoughts on that, being a previous fireman? <laughs> Uh, no, I, you know, we've, we've, it's, it's interesting. Um, my experience here is always, we've had a pretty decent relationship with police uh, in our area. Um, you know, they did their thing, we did our thing and, and, um, but you know, that's most of that time was post nine 11 and you know, the, the, we did a lot of work together to, because the focus was on training together and, and, and preparing together for, you know, responses in, in tandem in some way, shape or form. So, um, but I, I do know, you know, there, like any, like any group of people, you, you, you poke at each other a little bit and that's, I think part of the fun and, and part of the relationship, I think constantly between police and, and fire. And of course, well, yeah, and like, like I just, like I just said a minute ago, you know, when we heard that the firemen were being shot at during the uh, riots, you know, we about ran over a Lieutenant, uh, 
breaking our uh, order to stay put until we responded together. You know, it's, it's all just, you know, kind of a fun rivalry, but um, you know, we were, we were all brothers down there. Make no mistake about that. Well, Jamie, you remember the old adage for on hazmat that if you stuck your thumb out and you couldn't cover the incident, you were too close. Well, we used to bag on the cops and say what they do is they look through the hole in the donut <laughs> to appreciate <laughs> the same thing. You haven't heard that one, huh, Denny? <laughs> no, I love that. That's great. That's awesome. <laughs> well, we're winding down, but we have to touch on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, and you had actually had some interaction with those with those guys in New York. You want to mention that? Yeah, you know, I, I had been back there working. Uh, you know, of course, I was a homicide when, when the 9-11 happened. And um, in a year or two before... 9-11. I was back in New York. I, I was working a murder case from LA that, that took me all over the country. And and I hooked up with uh, some cops from the Brooklyn Cold Case Squad. And, and I went back there and my partner and I spent about a week with these guys. And man, they were some of the best guys I'd ever worked with. Some of the best cops, just, just fabulous guys that took good care of us. And and you know you can bond pretty quickly when when you're kicking doors and looking for murder suspects. And uh, we didn't have to know each other very long to know that we were brothers. So when 9/11 happened, that was that was one of my uh, greatest concerns. Was I was thinking about those guys back there, and and you know, I mean, even if I hadn't been back there, you know, I mean, I, I, when I saw the the footage on TV that morning, I, I began crying in my living room. You know, like I'm sure almost every American did, but. But we, even without knowing anyone, I, you know, it's it's just a very, very heartfelt, tragic moment. Um, but then when you also think, I know a bunch of cops back there right now, you know, and what has happened to them? How are they involved? Have they survived? You know, what are they going through? And it, and it really added a lot to to the uh, to the heaviness of, of that that whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was there for three weeks with my DMAT and, and by the same token, got to know a lot of the firefighters that were still working out there. And, and I just knew they weren't going to ever be the same. But, you yeah. know, this this kind of leads into your initial comment about PTSD. And you, you made an interesting comment that the common denominator that we all share is exposure to these atrocities that leave us scarred and worse. If I can work that into the discussion, we'll talk about it, which we are. Um, but, you know, you were talking about how you dealt with it. And I, I guess this was the theme for your book, how it ended your career. And, and now you write about those things that were injurious to you. You want to mention that a bit? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, for the last couple of years of my career, my wife um, several times had, had said that she thought I was depressed and, and, you know, I blew it off. You know, cops are too macho to deal with depression and things like that. And, uh, and I just wrote it off as, no, I'm tired. I'm burned out. I'm overworked. I'm, you know, whatever I am, but I'm, certainly not depressed because that's for the week. And when I left, um, I actually, I, I got injured pretty badly, uh, physical, physical injury. And, um, and it was when I was seeing my, my orthopedic doctor that, uh, that I broke down and, and, and he recognized, and he said, you know, I, I want you to see a counselor. So, 
that's when I ended up getting diagnosed with PTSD. And I tell this whole story in my book and, and, um, and, you know, if you go on Amazon and look at the book, they, they let you read the first, I think, two chapters free. And that first chapter is the heaviest, probably. Um, I, that's how I start the book. I, I talk about that conversation with my doctor and, and my reaction to it. And the reason I end up writing this memoir is because I, I think that more first responders need to be able to be open about how they suffer. I, I think the days of us you know, trying to hide our emotions and our feelings and, and, um, you know, pretend they don't exist. I mean, you know, traditionally too many cops have just, you know, they've gone away broken, but they don't tell anyone. And, you know, there's, there's more police suicides every year than there are line of duty deaths. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, and those people are broken. And so I, I just, I think it's one of the things that, that, all people who are exposed to these things, um, which obviously is all first responders for sure, but we, we need to be able to have open conversations about how we feel inside. Amen. And it's, you know, I started working with this as a peer counselor actually after one we didn't talk about, which uh, we might do on another episode, which was the, uh, the, Cerritos plane crash. That actually was my first big MCI. So we'll have to get oh, you wow. back on and, and uh, talk more about that one and some other things we might come up with. But, you know, I was one of those people that was constantly in denial, too, because I take care of other people with those issues. So it couldn't be me. But, you know, 10 years after uh, 15, after 9-11, I was talking to a friend of mine with the same issues, and he, I said, you know what? I could have PTSD. And he goes, well, it's about that time you recognized it. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, my 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 younger daughter um, is now a registered nurse, and she works in the emergency department. And, and I've had this conversation with her. I, you know, they're in the same boat. And I, I've told oh, yeah. her, I said, you know, you need to, to always, number one, communicate with your spouse don't, don't hold this stuff in and communicate with other people that, you know, will understand you and you can communicate with. And of course I reminded her, she has me, you know, who has experienced all of these things and, and I've survived it so far. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it never goes away. I was diagnosed with chronic PTSD and I can tell you there's, there's, there's times where I fall into dark holes and, and I, you know, for the most part I can stay aloft, but it's, you know, it's, it's always there. There's, you know, and, and that's why I say in that book, you know, I, I was a broken man, but, um, most people won't say that and they cer certainly won't say it publicly. And, um, it's, it's not, it, it's not something to be ashamed of because it happened to me. It's not something that I, you know, decided to become. Yeah. Well, I couldn't agree more, and I, I think your point is very valid. People have to acknowledge it. Like anything else, you have to acknowledge it before you can fix it. So that's another yeah. thing I'd like to talk with you some more about later. Uh, what do you think, Jamie? Well, I think before we, we, we let Danny go, I'd like to hear a little bit about your novels and um, and what they're called and where people can maybe find them and pick them up. Okay. Well, thanks, Jamie. I, um, so my, my first seven books are all novels. And, um, the first series is called the Dickie Floyd detective series. 
and it's on Amazon. Uh, my website has all the information about my books, and you can find that by either going to DickieFloydNovels.com or TheMurderMemo.com. And um, the murder memo is my blog, but but uh, the uh, and then I wrote a, a first book and a second series, kind of a spinoff series. But those are all detective novels, and um, you know people that who people who like like Bosch and and Joseph Lombard books and 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 crime fiction. You know they they've they've enjoyed those and they've been very successful. Um, this memoir, uh, again, you know, it's the first nonfiction I've written. It's very special to me. And, um, and that's, that's the book that I would really encourage any first responder to read, because I think number one, I know that, that all first responders are going to find parts of it they'll relate to. And I think that also it could help people. So. Absolutely. I, I certainly look forward to reading it. Um, I had another question for you and I forgot what it was. You had me focused on what you were saying. Anyway, Jamie. <laughs> oh, no. I was going to mention Jamie's also a novelist, just FYI. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah we, we, we're all, we all uh, right here, so it's all good. <laughs> good. It's well, cathartic. How, how therapeutic. Yeah, exactly. It really is. And, and actually, oh. my first series is about paramedics. And, and I think oh, I wrote a lot of that about, I, I wrote a lot of myself into the, the main character of that series. Um, to, and I think yeah, it was I very cathartic. <laughs> yeah, you got to read yeah. those, Danny. They're hysterical. They really are. Yeah, well, send, send me that information. I'd love to, seriously. Okay. I'll let you take care of that, Sam. You have his contact information. Right. So, um, and um, so, folks, I want to just uh, thank Danny for coming on, and um, also uh, give a shout out to Doctor Joe as he is working with his team uh, in there in Memphis and on the outskirts there on that incident today. We'll find out more about that from him coming up in the future. I do want to thank Paragon Medical Education Group for their continued support of this podcast and the amazing disaster preparedness training that they put together, customized. For for your jurisdiction. So if you've got a specific type of incident that you're really concerned about preparedness uh, in that in that sense, or if there's something that you guys really need to work on, uh, they are the team to bring in to do that, and they can customize it to your needs, to your budget, and to exactly what you want to get done. So contact them at paragonmedicalgroup.com. You can also reach out to them over at paragonmededu on Twitter, and we have links to them at disasterpodcast.com as well. So um, anyway, you want to reach out to them please take the time and find out more about how they can help you get done what you need to get done um danny you, you left us your um your uh, contact information via your uh website and we will definitely include links to that in the show notes and i want to thank you for coming on the show thank you guys i really appreciate you having me on and and it's been a nice visit with you sam we'll where, to do it again yeah where can folks find you sam if they want to follow what you're doing online well, I'll be on social media under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11, um, certainly in our disaster podcast group on Facebook, very active group, and disasterpodcast.com. All right. And, um, of course, you can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations, so friend or follow me there. And um, I will uh, kind of turn things back over to Sam as we uh, kind of close, th close things out today. Uh, I think it's important to um, 
listen to some of the things Danny talked about, that, that these are things we all deal with. We all have some of those demons that haunt us, um, those, those specific incidents that, um, you know, come to mind from time to time, un, unbidden, um, that we, we don't really want them haunting us, but they, they sent, seem to come back on their own from, from time to time. So be aware of that and um, do reach out and, and find the help when you need it because it's okay to do that and i hope that you'll continue to um th- listen to us and we cover this topic quite regularly here on the show so um come back and and um be with us when we share more in the future um sam good episode um i'm glad you reached out to danny to bring him on i'm glad danny was here with us and you know it just makes it reminds me of, you know, having worked with LASO for so many years in different police agencies. And, you know, when something happened to one of them, it didn't matter if it was a cop or a firefighter or an EMS person. We all were, you know, he talks about the brotherhood between him and his partner and him and, you know, other cops. And it, it is just one big family. And we all hurt when something happens to any of them. So just something to bear in mind. And I think Danny's point was very salient. You can't fix it if you don't acknowledge it.